Well, as you know, if you've been here uh, the last several weeks, we've been talking about how God's grace to us in Christ, received by faith, secures and assures our standing with God. Grace, grace, it's all of grace. You can't do anything. There's nothing in your past, there's no circumstance in your life that makes you more pleasing or acceptable or lovely to God. It is all of grace. And unfortunately, one of the risks of preaching the glorious good news of grace is that when sinners hear that message, sinners can come t- sometimes come away with the notion that, well, hey, since it's all of grace and it's all you know, secure, then it doesn't matter what I do. And that's a perfectly fine arrangement because God loves to forgive sin and <laughs> I love to sin. But that's not a new thing, is it? Even when Paul was preaching this glorious truth, he had to deal with it in his own day. That's why he wrote Romans chapter 6. That the gospel of grace does not mean then that we say out with any of God's commandments and let's just live like wild people and celebrate our wildness in the name of glorifying God's grace. No, we are saved and kept by grace alone, period. But you may recall, we are saved for a purpose. We are saved that as we increasingly taste his goodness and experience his glory, that we would hunger and thirst for it more and more and turn away from those things that distract and delude us and run for Him who is our source of joy. And in the process of doing that, what happens then is we model His glory to the world around us, thereby making Jesus look excellent and great and the supreme satisfier of souls. So God calls us for the purpose of good works. We are not saved because of works. We are called for works. Okay? Now, in this section of Philippians, we said that from 3 1 through 4 9, it's a section that is bracketed with the command, Rejoice in the Lord. And as you know, rejoice is the verb form of the noun joy. So, rejoicing is doing joy. And so we're looking at how this section in the book, chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 9, how it encourages us to increasingly pursue our joy in Christ. The first message in this chapter a few couple weeks ago was about how Paul wants us to avoid the distraction of legalism. Legalism will distract you and take your eyes off of that prize of ultimate joy in Christ. It will. So avoid that distraction. And last week we saw how he wants us to rest in true righteousness. And that true righteousness is not about how you've performed and what religious duties you've performed. It's about receiving the perfect work of Christ on your behalf by faith. That's resting in true righteousness. Now today we're going to consider his third appeal, which is to run with vigor. 
run with vigor. We have tasted it. We continue to taste it. And we want more of it. What is the it? His goodness. His grace. His glory. His wonderful presence. And as we run after it, we want more of it. And so, Paul wants us to have some tips here to enable us to run with vigor. Because as you know, there are keys to success. In any endeavor in life, you, when you have a task, someone might pull you aside and say, hey, here are some helpful tips that, that I had to learn the hard way and I want to pass my wisdom on to you. You ever had that? Sure you have. And so I think here that, uh, that what Paul wants to do is give us at least five tips for, for running with vigor. In this passage, he uses the metaphor of a Greek race, which was about a mile long. It was four laps, very much like, like a modern track race would be uh, with four laps. But as you know, in the real Christian life, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And at, at some point, you and I started this race. Now, some of us, are so close to the starting point where we can still hear the ringing of the starting pistol in our ears. Others of us are so near the finish line that you can almost see that tape. And you can almost see the crown in the hand of the judge to be given to you. But wherever you are in that process, wherever you are in this race, the message from Paul to you today is keep running with vigor. Don't slack off. Don't just rest on your laurels. It's not over till it's over. Keep running. Because there's an upward call of God in Christ for you. And the more you run, the more you pursue Him, the more you taste and see that He is good. So, I want to give you five short exhortations from this passage to help you run with vigor. And they are this, these. First, remember that you have not yet arrived. Remember that you have not yet arrived. Second, get over your past. Third, never lose the wonder of the gospel. Fourth, seek out and follow good examples. And then lastly, fifth, long for your homeland. All right, so we're going to look at each of these five brief exhortations, okay? First, remember that you have not yet arrived. Look with me at verses 12 and 13. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. Okay. Have you ever encountered someone who thinks they've arrived? We, we, we have that metaphor as an expression to describe someone who is, quite frankly, kind of cocky. They don't think they have anything else to learn. 
They don't think they have anything else to do. Uh, it, it's, it's annoying, isn't it? It's annoying when we see it in other people. But in your spiritual life, it's incredibly immobilizing. There comes a point in one's Christian life when, when, when the excitement wears off. It's not exciting being a Christian anymore. Uh, you've learned just enough of the Bible that you think you know the Bible. You've, uh, you've learned the, the rules for how to behave. And you kind of can just go through life coasting as a Christian, so to speak. And you can just start feeling like, hey, I've got nothing else to learn. I'm just going to live and we coast. And that would be a grave mistake. Sometimes we see a bumper sticker or a poster, and it'll say something along the lines of, Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. You ever seen that? Okay. Now, it's possible to take that as, as just a sign or, or a statement of, of what is a true fact, that we are a work in progress. We have not yet arrived. But all too often, unfortunately, that same bumper sticker is used to express an ambivalent attitude towards the ongoing presence of sin in their lives. I'm not perfect. I'm just forgiven. And so there's no effort taken to mortify the flesh, which is the Puritan word for, for, for kill the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh in Paul's language. And there's no attempt to live by the Spirit, to vivify the flesh, to use Puritan language. And that attitude of I'm forgiven, I'm not perfect, so what? I have nothing else really to learn. That is toxic for your running. Toxic. There is, in Paul's language here, he mentions it twice in verse 12 and 13, two times. Two times he uses the negative. I have not yet arrived. I am not perfect. Now when he says perfect, he doesn't just mean sinless. Perfect in the philosophical sense means the completed state. Okay? You are a work in progress. You are not brought to completion. In other words, the thing that God began in you. Do you remember way back in chapter 1? He's confident that God who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Okay, there's a good work that's been started in you. There's a good work that's been started in Paul. And it has not yet been completed. He's a work in progress, which means that he needs to keep pressing on until it is completed. So, it's an important point to remember, then, that we should not think that the whole of the Christian life is simply looking back at one's justification and saying, I've been forgiven, it's all good, I don't need to do anything else. Justification is where I've been declared righteous by God and now I can just coast and do what I want. There was a, uh, a, a former celebrity pastor in our denomination in Florida who, who caused ripples when he said, I, he, he applied this principle to his marriage, I don't need to work on my marriage because my marriage is already perfect in Christ. And he was arguing that the that the essence of the Christian life was simply to remember one's justification. 
and we can all probably imagine what happened. Don't say, I'm justified. I believe in Jesus, and I'm clothed with his righteousness, so I can just do whatever. Don't act as if that the sum total of the work of God in your life was to get you justified. There's still more to do. God wants the justification that he's credited to you legally to be worked out practically in your life so that way as you become more experientially holy, you can enjoy him more and you can be a better witness to the world that only Jesus can satisfy. You need to remember that the grace you received, do you remember that awesome feeling of of, of freeness you felt when you first believed? That was just an appetizer. Too many Christians live miserable lives because they're sitting there remembering the taste of the appetizer. And they haven't turned toward the main course. Remember, you were saved for a purpose. And that is to grow in Christ-likeness. So don't just leave it at justification and think, oh, that's good enough. No! You're missing out! Dive deeper, ever deeper, ever deeper. You have not yet arrived. Second, get over your past. Verses 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Okay, in football, you'll routinely heard it said that a good quarterback needs to have a short memory. Or you may have heard people talk about the need to have a good forgettery. Okay? And there's a reason for that. There is a reason for that. In a a, a football setting, you know, anything can go wrong. In fact, something will go wrong probably more often than it goes right. You're going to get sacked. There's going to be a bad throw. You're you're not going to have the right cleats. You're going to slip on the grass. Uh... You're going to fumble the ball. The receiver's going to drop the ball. You're going to have a bad drive. And if you sit there sulking about what went wrong in the past, then when you're in the now, it's going to affect how you perform. Likewise, on the flip side of things, it's possible to go into a situation with your head full and feeling cocky because you did well last time, And so you don't take seriously what's going on in front of you, and you squander it. In the Christian life, we let our past negatively influence us all too often. Too many Christians will sulk, nursing their grievances. Someone did this to me. These things happened to me. And they take that into the present, and it diminishes them where they are. Or they will sit there wanting to bask in the glory of how things were 20 years ago or something. It's time to move on. There's a battle right now. You, you see it on a large scale in America. If you, if you look at what's going on in the church and culture, there's a lot of people who are really distraught about the decline of the church's influence in our culture. Maybe you're one of them. Okay, it's fine to be upset, but don't just dwell in the past. You need to forget that. 
Forget it in the sense that you stop letting it be the controlling thing in your life and you're wasting energy on it when you could be applying that energy to dealing with what God has given to you in the present. In Scripture, we are called repeatedly to remember what God has done in the past. But that is always so that we would have the energy and the fuel and the drive in the present to trust God. Too many of us are trying to live today on yesterday's manna. Do you remember how the manna worked in, the, in Exodus? How they could go out each day and you could only collect enough for that day. And if you tried to make today's manna stretch till tomorrow, guess what happened tomorrow? It was all maggoty. God gives us just enough daily bread for today, there's a reason his mercies are renewed each morning. He wants us to trust him and look at the problems of today with the grace that he gives us for today. So how many of you are looking at today's issues in the light of what happened? Maybe bad stuff. Maybe good stuff. Maybe the good stuff was so great that you look at the present as a pale imitation and you're just discouraged all the time. Or maybe the stuff in the past was so bad that you're just discouraged and, 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 and embittered. Let it go. Get over your past. It will keep you from running with vigor. Okay? Third, never lose your wonder of the gospel. Never lose your wonder of the gospel. You know I love Christmas. Just a little thing. We're actually going to celebrate something this Saturday called Halfness. This Saturday is June 25th. And so we're going to do like a, a couple Christmas songs. Anyway, I love Christmas. But the biggest thing I love about Christmas is that wonder you see in the eyes of a child. The bright lights, the, the whole the spectacle that is Christmas. You know, uh, we, we've, we go hiking. Uh, thank you to the Prathers for introducing us to Red Top Mountain Park. But we like to go hiking up there because it's 20 minutes from our house. And we were hiking up there a couple weeks ago. And this was not the first squirrel that Noah has ever seen. But we're hiking in the woods and Noah sees a squirrel and he just exclaims, you know, there's a squirrel. It's amazing how much more enjoyable life is when you are amazed at the wonders of life. Think about how so often our lives are dreary because we've been so desensitized that, that nothing causes us to marvel. New Christians are so exuberant and excited because the mysteries of the gospel are fresh to them. And the mystery that a holy and perfect God would love little old sinful them, that's amazing to them. But all too often, we stop being amazed by that. And it seems like we would take away the amazing grace and just sing common grace. How sweet the sound. That's saved a someone like me and everyone else. But no, it's amazing. Now, you see it in Paul here. 
by the time of his writing of this, he's been converted 35, 40 years. Okay? And look at the end of verse 12. He's still, he's pressing on. He is zealously pursuing this upward call. And he says, uh, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or in your NIV, I'm pursuing that for which Christ took hold of me. That's amazing to him that the second person of the Trinity came down and gripped his life. He literally appeared to him and transformed his life. And he is still in awe of that. And look at the last verse, 21, when he's speaking of the resurrection, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Okay, when was the last time you really reflected on the truths of the gospel, the truths of the resurrection? And we're amazed. This is, ama- this is amazing stuff. Think about it. We've all seen it. We've all been to a funeral. We've seen a corpse. Some of us have seen bodies that have been mangled. And it's disgusting. And it's sad or, or it's whatever. And it, and it, but the day is going to come when the sky is going to crack and the earth and the sea are going to give up their dead and, and, and bodies are going to be reunited with their souls and some are going to be raised to everlasting life and honor and some are going to be raised to everlasting horror. Isn't that, that, that that's, a, that's, whoa. And then here is the king of the universe who has set aside all of his rights and prerogatives for you. You know what goes on in your heart. Your family has an idea, but you know what's in there. And he knows every thought before you form them. And he still came and bled and died for you. That is amazing. So I would suggest to you that a key to running with vigor is keeping before your eyes and your heart the wonder of it all. Do that in part by continuing to study. If you, if you don't look into these things, if you don't search the scriptures, you, you, you won't think about it. But look at it in the lives of other people. You got to be around God's people and reflect and share. Think about, talk about these things. It is truly amazing. So never lose your wonder of the gospel. God did not call you to the death march. He called you to a race. There is a crowd of angels and saints cheering you on. So run with vigor and stand in awe of that. Fourth, seek out and follow good examples. Uh, Way back when, when I had applied to be a police officer, and one of the things was a physical test, and this is the only time in my life that this happened, but we had to run a one and a half mile, I don't know, track. And I took off, and by about 400 yards in, about a quarter mile in, I could, I could hear and sort of see if I glanced. There was, there was a guy at about my four o'clock just, just pacing me, just pacing off of me. Okay? So I ran, finished the, finished the test, and at the end he thanked me for running such a great pace. It was a pace he could manage, but yet he knew that he would be able to sustain it the whole time. 
Now, that's the only time in my life anybody has ever paced off me because typically I'm the one who's dragging and... <laughs> so, but... Godliness, godliness is something that is caught almost as much or probably more than it's taught. The principle of imitation is all throughout Scripture. They say that imitation is the highest form of praise, right? Paul wants us to be like him. In Titus 2, we're called to to have the older ladies teach the younger ladies. And it's pretty amazing what they're called to teach how to love their husbands and children. I mean, doesn't the love of a mother come naturally? But why do they have to be taught? So maybe it doesn't come naturally. But the principle of imitation is all throughout Scripture. That is, we need good, godly examples. During my time in the army, I saw a phenomenon repeated over and over. And that is, you could tell within about 60 60 to 90 days if if a new soldier was going to end up being a problem or, or a success. And in large part, it centered around who who did he start hanging around and who in the chain of command would reach forward and mentor this person. If a young soldier was left to flap in the breeze, he would almost invariably be, be, I don't know, sought out or he would seek out the people who would almost always lead to him getting in trouble. But if the, if the corporals and the sergeants would lean forward and seek this person out and guide them to the good, to the well-behaved and, 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 and proficient soldiers, he would almost always become a success. Almost always I saw this. I'm sure many of you have the same stories you could point to in your own professions. But the principle is good examples teach us to be good. Bad examples teach us to be bad. It's not, you know, it's not rocket science. So many Christians, or so-called Christians, are actually really bad examples. But for some reason, we're drawn to them. And, and Paul wants to warn people away from them. He talks about people who, who walk as enemies of the cross. To walk is the, his normal metaphor for live. They live as enemies of the cross. In other words, these are not professing pagans. These are professing Christians whose God is their belly. That means when he says their God is their belly, that he's not literally saying they're, they're gluttons. Uh, it, it's, it's a metaphor to describe someone who lives by their appetites. All they want is, is, is what's flashy here and now, and, and, it's, and, and it's a consumed thing, and it's done, and they want more. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame. In other words, they, they act immorally, but they think that it's a celebration of something. You, you could basically say half our culture glories in its shame. And their mind is set on earthly things. That's all they worry about. That's all they talk about. In contrast, pursue people like Paul. Pursue people like, like Timothy. Pursue people like Epaphroditus. All these people are mentioned in this book. There are godly people to your left and your right. They will show you what it looks like to run with vigor. So look at them. Imitate them. Find out what they're doing. And try it out. And perhaps you're someone who's been running a while. And you have some tips, some, 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 some tricks of the trade, so to speak. 
And maybe you see someone who's younger or, or less experienced on this race, and, and maybe you could lean forward and speak into their life some wisdom. That might be really helpful. So, seek out and follow good examples. And lastly, I want to encourage you, long for your homeland. In verse 20, it says, uh, but our citizenship is in heaven. We've already talked about the Philippians. They have their citizenship as Roman citizens. So the idea of being citizens is real in their mind. And we await a Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul wrote that, it was profoundly political language. Savior and Lord, those were titles for Caesar. It would be like if, if the German church of the 30s had wanted to, had wanted to show how they were snubbing or, or what a fraud Hitler was. They may have called Jesus der Führer, the leader, the protector, to show that Hitler was just a pretender. But as you can probably guess, had they done that, the, the German leadership would have snuffed that out pretty quick, right? Well, the Romans didn't take too kind to Jesus being called Caesar or, or, or Savior and Lord because those were Caesar's titles. But our citizenship is in heaven. We operate on a different principle. We follow different allegiances. And I would suggest that one of the reasons we have a hard time running with vigor is because we have become so comfortable here that we, quite frankly, don't really long for our home. Or maybe we've come to think that this is our home. We understand that the Bible calls us strangers, it calls us pilgrims, it calls us sojourners, aliens, foreigners. It uses just about every word it can to try to drive home the point that we don't belong here. We exist here. And we're called to do the good of the people here. But we are called ultimately to remember that this is not our home. And so for some of us, the changes that are taking place in our culture, are, are, it's painful in part because what's happening is as, as that facade is being ripped away and stripped down, we're becoming uncomfortably aware that we have a principle that guides us. We have an ethic. We have a worldview that indeed is foreign to this place. And that's scary. But nonetheless, remember that it is simply reflecting what has always been true. As a child of the king, you have a different home. Kind of like if you go to Germany, you can hang out with Americans, you can try to insulate yourself from the German experience, but anytime you want to go out, you're going to be confronted with the fact that people reason differently than you. It's, it's, I thought logic was just logic, that, that what makes sense makes sense. They have a different mindset of what makes sense. And, and they're Germans. They're not, they're not like, you know, Koreans. I mean, they're Western, right? I thought we'd have the same perspective. No, we don't. And so too it is with the world around us. Always cultivate a longing for heaven. To see Jesus, to be with Jesus. It's okay to be comfortable here and enjoy some of the creature comforts of life in 21st century America, but never ever lose your hunger for heaven. Be kind of like one of the, one of the folks on Gilligan's Island. Remember that show from the 60s? Some of you kids, huh? 
Well, they, they had left on a three-hour tour, and they got stranded on an island. I don't know how they could have been that far away, but anyway, whatever. And they're stranded on this island, and over the course of, I think they had like 93 episodes in their series or something like that, 93, 98, something. Well, they, they built some pretty remarkable things. I mean, in that show, they were able to put on full-on Broadway plays, you know, for themselves. I mean, life became pretty comfortable on that island, did it not? But every episode had them trying to get off. And of course, it always failed. But nonetheless, each week, each episode was a new attempt to find their way back to where they were from. So the principle for me that I took from that is I can live here in America and have a good time. I don't have to weep and, 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 and wail all day but still long for home. God has put you here and now for a purpose, to glorify God in the here and now, not to wish you were back in the Middle Ages, not to wish you were back in the Wild West, but to live here and now, to speak to here and now, but also to communicate to those around you that there's a better place, there's a better country than America, and it's called the King's Country. And that's where we want to be. So cultivate a hunger. Study heaven. Study the glories of the resurrection. So that as you're running this race, you can look forward to your prize, your being with Jesus in glory. And that'll make it a whole lot easier to run with vigor. So five tips. Remember that you have not yet arrived. Get over your past. Never lose your wonder of the gospel. Seek out and follow good examples and long for your homeland. Incorporate those and you will find your ability to run strengthened. Let's pray.